0: Hello, I'm Derek Thorne and this is the audio news programme from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. We've got a couple of stories in this edition, plus expert comment, and we'll be trying to answer two big questions in global health. How do we improve adherence to tuberculosis medication and how do we make HIV prevention trials work? So, firstly, a review published by the Public Library of Science says that the global burden of TB could be reduced if a new approach is taken to encouraging adherence to medication. The study reveals that up to half of all patients do not complete treatment, and there are numerous reasons for this which are often not taken into account. They include gender issues, stigma and transport to health centres and clinics. Simon Lewin of the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine was part of a team that performed a systematic review of studies in this area. And they were particularly interested in the views of patients, caregivers, and healthcare providers on factors affecting adherence. He spoke with our reporter, Nicola Solomon.
1: From the studies, we identified four key areas that influence adherence to treatment. And these include what we called structural factors, sort of broader issues in society, poverty, gender issues, discrimination particularly the stigma that's held against people with tuberculosis, secondly the social context in which the patient's located, the kinds of support they're receiving from their family, community and so on regarding the disease, thirdly health service factors and by this we mean the quality of care largely that is available for tuberculosis, how easy it is to access treatment and how people are received when they're in that sort of six month process of taking treatment and finally sort of personal factors and these include um, the knowledge, attitudes and so on of people who um, have the disease and are on treatment. How do you think these problems could be tackled? Should it be done at national levels, individual levels, or do you think maybe even globally? I mean, I think it's important to intervene at all those different levels. What we recommend in the study is that much more attention needs to be paid now to interventions directed at some of the factors I mentioned, structural level interventions and interventions towards improving support for patients in different ways. So to date, most sort of interventions that are designed to improve adherence are focused on the individual themselves. And a lot of them have been quite draconian, I suppose one might say, in that they try to enforce the system whereby people have to attend a clinic daily. What we suggest is that we need to pay much more attention to the other factors that hinder people from adhering, looking, for example, at gender issues often in some communities and areas women find it difficult to access treatment because they need the permission or the financial support of their male partner. In other areas, as I mentioned, poverty is a major problem. The costs of treatment, that needs to be addressed. And how we can provide support to patients in that process of treatment is enormously important. Do you think more should be done in this area? What else should people be looking into? We were quite struck in doing this research by the very small number of studies that have looked at the experiences of people who have both HIV and TB. And as you know, that is an increasing issue, people who are on treatment for both antiretroviral treatment and tuberculosis treatment. And because both treatment regimes are highly complex and in the case of ARTs, lifelong adherence issues are even more problematic in, in the scenario where people are either on one treatment or another. And yet despite that and despite the growing burden of people who have both diseases, very few studies have looked at that issue, and we feel that that's one area that certainly needs attention. The other is to do with the impact of gender on people's treatment experiences, and although several studies highlighted that, very few have looked at the issue in depth. And finally, I think we were also struck by the way in which many of these studies very much took the perspective in looking at adherence of healthcare providers a biomedical perspective, whereas I think much is to be learned from studies that are much more immersed in the experiences of people taking treatment and other members in the community.
0: Simon Lewin speaking with Nicola Solomon. Now, a large study of HIV prevention done in southern Africa and recently published in The Lancet has failed to show a benefit from the intervention, which was a latex diaphragm plus lubricant gel. But the story doesn't end there because this is one of a number of recent trials that have failed to show a protective advantage. So what now for the field? In a moment, we'll be hearing from David Mabey, Professor of Communicable Diseases at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, who says we need greater funding for these trials. But firstly, let's get some detail on the diaphragm study from Nancy Padian of the University of California at San Francisco. The idea was to provide a method of protection that was female-controlled, and in the trial, the diaphragm was added to an effective prevention package which included condoms. This didn't give additional protection, but as she told me over the phone, there were some subtleties to the data that might help explain the negative result.
2: Women in the diaphragm arm, at least insofar as you believe self-report, because there's really no objective measure of this, but women in the diaphragm arm reported less condom use with their male partners than did women in the condom-only arm. Um, However, they did not have increased HIV infection.
0: That is certainly interesting because perhaps it suggests that the the women are feeling safer um, once they have a diaphragm, so they don't feel the same need to have the the condom there as well. I mean, how do you interpret this?
2: Well, I think what you just brought up is indeed one possibility, and we speculate based on some initial data from the study, some initial qualitative data. We're still analyzing those data, and there will be more to come. That, in fact, what you said is one reason, which is that even though we counseled pretty intensively that, in fact, the reason we were doing the study was, because, was exactly to find out whether diaphragms were protective or not, and we didn't know. Nevertheless, I think some women did see a therapeutic benefit or, or had the misconception that there might be some benefit. I mean, you also have to realize these women in many cases are desperate for something that they can use. So I think that that was one reason I think in some instances, even though you can use the diaphragm clandestinely, you can. We have good data showing that women can use it without their male partners. Nevertheless, the majority of women in the study did tell their male partners, and we also think that in some cases the men did not want the women to use them. Maybe also some women just didn't like the idea of having two things in their genital tract, a condom and a diaphragm.
0: Um, That point you mentioned there about women disclosing to their sexual partners about them having a diaphragm, that is really interesting just because um, in a way it it betrays the idea of trying to make this a female controlled method Method. of of prevention because actually if they are informing their partners about it then it, it no longer becomes female controlled in a way.
2: I think that's a really good point and that is something that really troubles me. I think what a lot of researchers are finding, not only in our trial but for example in lots of trials with microbicides, is that for many, many women they feel as though they cannot participate in these trials unless their male partners give them permission to do so and that's clearly not the case for all of them, but definitely a significant chunk and what worries me about that is exactly what you were alluding to and that is the women most in need of these methods may be the ones who do not participate in these trials. Um, You know, It requires a, a, a significant commitment. They have to come in on a regular basis. It's over several months. And sort of to be able to do that and not tell your male partner could be very difficult. But I agree that I think your point is extremely well taken, that those very women who may be most in need of a method to protect themselves may not be the ones participating in these studies.
0: So finally then, where do you think we should go from here with trials like this?
2: Well, I think a major issue is adherence. Our adherence was somewhat lower than what we thought. I think there are major issues with self-report. For example, in our study, one might postulate that the decreased condom use without increased HIV infection might mean that the diaphragm was somewhat protective. You know, for those women who did not use condoms, maybe diaphragm did protect them. On the other hand, we can't rule out that the women in the the condom-only arm maybe reported more condom use because they knew that that was the primary intervention message that they were getting. So I think we have really a lot of work to do sorting out adherence when people use something, under what circumstances, and self-report. And without knowing more about both of those, I think it makes it hard for us to sort of unwind what the results of our study really mean. I still think it's worth thinking about cervical barriers. Um, We, for example, could not test whether a cervical barrier was better than nothing. Uh, We did not do a head-on comparison to see whether it was as good as condoms. So there are still some outstanding questions that need to be answered, but I do think we need to pause and reflect and think about these more behavioral issues relating to uh, the report of private behaviors and also adherence to all of the products that are being used in prevention trials.
0: That's Nancy Padian of the University of California, San Francisco. I also got some comments on this from David Mabey of the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine and he told me that although these HIV prevention trials are hard to do, they are vital and we need more of them.
3: Trials of HIV prevention are extremely important. More than four million people acquire HIV every year. Clearly prevention is the key and a lot of money and resources are spent on that with very little evidence base. So in my view, there is a real need for more studies on uh, methods of prevention. Now they're difficult to do and they're expensive because they involve large numbers of people and especially if it's an intervention targeted at a community rather than an individual, then you have to do community randomized trials where um, you have some communities receiving the intervention and some who are not. And these, by definition, are very large and expensive studies. But to my mind, the, that money is well spent, because otherwise money is wasted on ineffective interventions.
0: Now, there are some, a, a number of trials that have been done recently on prevention. Some have worked, some have not. I mean, could you tell us a bit more about which ones have worked and perhaps why they've worked?
3: Uh, well, the one which has been in the news this year is circumcision. There have now been three studies of male circumcision in different countries in Africa and all have shown, they've shown a remarkably similar effect in that circumcision in males reduces their chance of acquiring HIV by somewhere between a half and two-thirds. Other trials of prevention, people have looked at educational programs uh, in schools for example. These again are very difficult to do, there's there's only been one community randomized trial conducted with HIV incidence As the endpoint, there have been many trials which have asked people about their behaviour after receiving an educational intervention, but clearly um, people are not always honest when describing their sexual behaviour. So far, unfortunately, educational interventions have not been shown to be effective using hard endpoints, so I think we need more studies on which kinds of education are most effective.
0: When it comes to doing these trials, we've seen that some show benefits, some do not. I mean, you're proposing that we should be doing more and that they are important. Should we therefore just be accepting the fact that perhaps some will not work, some will, and we're just going to have to take whatever benefit we see?
3: My feeling is far more resources should be put into trials of prevention. There there was uh, something called the Sydney Declaration made at the International AIDS Society meeting last month proposing that 10% of all money that goes into HIV programmes should be devoted to research. Now, huge resources are put into research on treatment. Clearly, the drug companies have a lot of money to make out of this. Far fewer resources are going into um, trials of prevention. So, to my mind, it's an issue of resources. There should be more funding made available for trials of prevention, which, of necessity, are expensive and and large and difficult to do. But that shouldn't stop people doing them, because prevention is clearly the key to this.
0: David may be speaking there. That's all from this edition of the Audio News Programme from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. But
2: do look out for more from us, and until then, it's goodbye.